don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit, like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 19, uh, coming up on 20 real fast. And today we're talking about 1992's Ferngully, The Last Rainforest, uh, directed by Bill Croyer, who's not super duper well known, but he's... Are you kidding me? Croyer? Bill, Cro- Bill Croyer? He's got a few criterions, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's Spielberg, it's Scorsese, and it's Croyer. Uh, I think, I forget what it was, but he, he's been around and done some like more recent-ish stuff, animation-wise, but nothing like too... This is his biggest like directorial project, I think. Yeah. Um, but you know, still been working. I I don't know why that is. Like Fern Goalie was fairly successful, but whatever. Did uh, he make the sequel? No, I don't think I don't believe so. Uh, the sequel, which came out like what, like six years after the original yeah, or something, was straight to straight to DVD or I guess straight to video yeah. at that point. Um, written by. Uh, or based on a series of stories by da- Diane Young, who's not known for any reason other than this, as far as I can tell. And uh, her husband was Wayne Young, one of the producers of the film. Isn't the uh, male character's name Zach Young? I, is that his last name? I think so. Okay, so I, I knew this. I, well, I wanted to talk about his name being Zach, because he's like quintessential 90s. Bro. Bro, yeah. Yeah, he's like um, surfer bro or like skateboard bro when when skateboarding was, you know, becoming cool. One of his first lines is don't have a cow, mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. Um, he has the like blonde hair but the black or like brown eyebrows. And, yeah, like, and you can see the sidebrow. Yeah, Jensen and I were watching and I was like, so his hair's dyed? And that seems very intentional. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, obviously <laughs> everything is intentional in an animated film. Yeah. You know, in the 90s, you have, like, Zach Morris from Say by the Bells, like, the cool guy. Yeah. Um, so Zach's a very, very 90s name that you don't really see and as much Zach, anymore. Uh, Zach Seiler from uh, She's All That, you know, Freddie yeah. Prince Jr. Uh, my, my friend Zach <laughs> who probably doesn't listen to this, but yeah. and if he did, he wouldn't admit that he did, but <laughs> his name is very 90s and very lame. Um that's a test to see. <laughs> but th- this is even like the most annoying version of Zach, which is Z A K. Mm-hmm. Like the uh, Ben Fold song, Zach and Sarah. Oh, yeah. Zach without the C. Um, you know, voiced by Jonathan Ward, who I don't know who that is really. Um, and then Krista, the other main character, the fairy, uh, voiced by Samantha Mathis, who again, as far as I can tell, didn't really do. <laughs> Didn't really do any big, well-known stuff. Like, did some stuff, but yeah, nothing it's, huge. It's weird how the main characters are are basically people we never heard from again, and all the sort of minor minor characters. So you know, it's Cheech and Chong and Tim Curry and, and Robin Loke. Williams and Tone Loke, one of my personal idols. Uh, Grace Abriski, who's been in a bunch of Lynch stuff. Huh. Uh, she was a uh, Maggie. Oh, okay. And uh, has been in like. Uh, Twin Peaks and Lost Highway. I see. Stuff like that. Um, Robin Williams. Christian Slater. Oh, yeah. Yeah. As as Pips, who just looks like a... Looks like Bam Bam from the Flintstones grew up. (laughs) He's like loincloth with his muscles. He's a nippleless hunk. The nippleless hunk. 
Uh, Great yeah. name for a bar. Say what? <laughs> the nippleless hunk. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, he, uh, I, I guess he and Krista, the first thing you notice is just how sort of, uh, offensively drawn they are it's just like sexualized weirdly. <laughs> yeah like weird especially Krista she's like she's got that badonka donk yeah and her thing is like her uh, skirt and little like tank t- whatever you would call that it's like you know torn at the bottom it's like yeah. jagged and it's very like it's like primal nice. stripper looking primal stripper <laughs> that's uh, a great fashion uh, category I'm going for a sort of sort of primal stripper and I will say, uh, I think I, I read this in like a cracked article, I think, from a few years ago, how there's a weird like fetish that some uh, creepy old men have for like Tinkerbell because she's tiny and she's like scantily clad. And Krista mm-hmm. kind of like comes into that same sort of, yeah, um, you know, being tiny, being like in danger all the time, sort of weird. Yeah, there's a lot of weird like. Uh, well, I don't want to kink shame anyone, but there's a lot of weird fetishy stuff. Right, and and the same is true of Avatar, which the comparisons will be endless. I'm yeah. sure. Uh, you know, there's the line in Avatar where the the general Quaritch says, "Oh, he went and got him some blue poon or whatever he says," and now he's. <laughs> I don't think that's what he said. I wish that had been what he said. <laughs> it's Arlie Ermy talking blue. about blue poon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whatever he says, he's you know basically implying that he went and had sex, and that's why he's wanting to defend these people. And that sounds really pessimistic and cynical, but it's like the more I watch movies like this, it's like yeah, it's amazing how open-minded these guys come become uh, when they're just trying to sleep with some weird <laughs> you know uh, fetish of theirs, where it's like Jake in Avatar, you know, becomes. The, the Navi so he can go have weird tail sex with yeah. well, you know, Neytiri once you take the, the venom out of the snake so to speak yeah start seeing a little bit more clearly and <laughs> and then uh, Zach you know gets uh, shrunk down and a sh- he's a shrunk hunk <laughs> And so gets his gets his fairy flirt on. Fairy freak on. <laughs> his fairy freak on. And like in the new world, Captain John or John Smith or John whatever his name is. Joe Johnston. Joe John Johnston Joe. Um, you know, he becomes very open minded to the Native American ways when Pocahontas uh Pocahontas. I wasn't gonna go there, but you did. And I will say there's a difference, and as if there's only one between Avatar and Ferngully, is release date. Well, yeah, <laughs> and uh, budget. <laughs> but in Ferngully, Jake did Jake right? No, it's Zach. Jake yeah. and Avatar. In Avatar, yes, in yeah. Avatar, Jake, uh, Jake and Zach. It's like the two most might as well be might as well be Kyle. Cody, um, but Keith, worst. Anyway, we got any Cody's out there listening? Fuck don't. <laughs> um, but in Avatar, Jake does a lot of work to become Navi and learn the ways, and he becomes a 
the word I can't remember that means writer of the last shadow. Um, that uh, we talked about. Macta. Yeah, Terramacta. And so he, he puts in a lot of effort, whereas in Firm Goal, it's kind of Zach just kind of shows up, mm-hmm. and Krista immediately is like there to take care of him and make sure that she's learned her magic recently. Yeah, and uh, they the all that aside, because that, that's kind of my, the whole point I wanted to make. But I do want to say that um, talking about animation, because this is the second animated film, unless you count Avatar. Um, so if you have think about the computer generated graphics in Avatar and in Wall-E and how smooth they are and how I never really noticed before that that level of sort of fluency with the animation gives you an ability to carry off uh, humor and jokes a lot easier than Ferngoli, like the animation of the era of Ferngoli does. Because there are some weird sort of uh, scenes in Ferngoli where it's meant to be funny, but because the animation is so kind of rudimentary compared to what we have today it just mm-hmm. it seems weird like I know what you mean. a little bit uh, like weird pauses and stuff I, I really think that just in, in any in a TV show and movies whatever editing is is what makes something funny yeah um, I was just watching we were just talking about Dr. Steve Brule and I've been watching re, I've been revisiting Dr. Steve Brule and Really, if you think about Adult Swim, like it's like half of their jokes are like editing jokes. Like, what would that show be without you know the weird little seeming like uh, technical difficulties? You know what I'm yeah, talking about? The whole like Tim and Eric universe right. is kind of predicated on on specific kinds of editing, like the right the famous uh, it's free real estate clip where it like zooms in on them. That kind of stuff, right? And so, and it's true of, um, and that's why they have laugh tracks and sitcoms. It's it's to smooth, you know, to to help the flow of the show. Um, or at least that's part of the reason. And yeah, so so humor does not happen in movies without like expert editing and and obviously timing and comedy and that whole thing. Um, so yeah, I see what you mean. I didn't really think of it that way, but I think you're right um, that the newer technology kind of allows people to better approximate, better approximate reality and 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 have more control over uh, the sort of timing of the jokes. And it's a, it's just a whole different thing in terms of how they make the movie to where it seems like it's probably. It's, it's probably way easier uh, on a computer to like yeah. test things, you know, try multiple versions and that sort of thing. I remember uh, whatever that documentary about South Park that came out like I guess ten years ago at this point or whatever, and it was after they had switched from hand animation to like some fancy computer program, and they're talking about how it uh, made their turnaround so much shorter so they could. Uh, you know, stay with things that were happening in in the culture, like yeah. as they were happening, instead of being delayed by two months or whatever it was. Yeah, now they make they. Uh, there's like some show where they show you how they make a show in a week. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they were saying it's like making because the animation on South Park is so kind of basic that it was like making a sandcastle with a bulldozer. Um, and so you can imagine that the kind of freedom that would give you to, yeah. to do things. 
Uh, whereas in Ferngully, it's a little bit more limited. And you can really tell because Robin Williams, just being Robin Williams, brings so much just manic energy to uh, to Batty. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't always keep up, or the animation doesn't always keep up. So his lines, his jokes, at least for the first you know minute or so, I was just like, this is really weird and like not I was just working I was just reading that review in the new from the New York Times that came out in April 92 and it was sort of saying how out of place his humor is where it's like all these references to like uh, Betty Davis and Desi Arnaz it's like (laughs) what the hell is he doing Uh, Um, which like if you think of like stuff like that being put in for parents or something like that well even parents in 92 that's a little dated yeah um, so, although he did, he does have a few lines, like I remember being a kid, and, and that's something else I wanted to bring up is that when we told people we know that we were going to be doing Ferngoli, they were like, "Oh, I haven't seen that since I was six or whatever." Mm-hmm. And I think, at least for uh, people around our age, uh, sort of remember this film, remember seeing it, um, or like watching it in school or whatever it would have been, and it being a big thing because you know animated films in the late 80s, early 90s. That was kind of the golden age of Disney, all this kind of stuff. So uh, you have that sort of childhood connection to these movies. And for me, it, it wasn't especially strong because I remembered watching it, but I didn't remember like loving it. Or it was the exact like same way. I, I know I'd seen it, but I... But I do know people that really like this movie and talk about like Hexus, Tim Curry's villain character being... Mm-hmm. You know, really disturbing when they mm-hmm. were a kid because it's so his voice the top and is evil. very cool, and it's Tim Curry. Yeah. You know? um, but one thing I remember, the whole point of saying that was to say, when Robin Williams as Batty uses the phrase "I need a checkup from the neck up," it was the first time I'd heard that in my life, and I thought it was like the funniest shit when I was like six or whatever when I watched this movie. I just remember thinking like, that is the most clever thing any <laughs> human has ever thought of. Uh, uh, Jensen and I were talking about it, and I guess, was this right before or right after Aladdin? Um, I think, I, I, I want to say Aladdin is a little bit later, but I'm not sure. I th- see, I was thinking that Aladdin was right before this, and he was the genie. Um, it was also 92, but I don't know, like, when the Because Jensen was saying she thought that Disney was, like, kind of pissed at him for, for doing this, you know, non-Disney in a way kind of similar character the sort of minor I mean not the main character kind of a goofy sidekick animated you know voice and um, I mean this is not a real serious point I'm making here but I thought it was really interesting that he did these two animated movies basically back to back and then in 1993 I believe it was Miss Doubtfire comes out and he plays at the beginning, he's like a voice actor who gets fired for doing, uh, for like putting his own personal sort of political opinions about smoking in that case, um, into the you know into the voice into the mouth of this car- kid's cartoon character, um, and maybe that has absolutely nothing to do with anything, but that's where my mind went. Uh, so I just gave it a quick Google because I. I remember something like this because I watched the uh, Robin Williams documentary that kind of came out after his death and I remember mentioning something like in Mrs. Doubtfire I think that it is meant to be kind of a reference to really his work and so I found this story from 93 from the LA Times 
and uh, says, actor Robin Williams doing little to disguise his anger and pulling on an imaginary nose, a la Pinocchio accused the Walt Disney Company Wednesday of lying to him and breaching an agreement not to use his voice to merchandise products inspired by the hit animated film Aladdin. And I think the big problem comes from this, which is... Um, Executives, Disney executives would not comment on his remarks, but sources familiar with the dispute characterized Williams' comments as sour grapes because he was paid scale of $75,000 for his work on an animated film that went on to gross more than $200 million. So I think it might have been that they grossly underpaid him and then kept using his voice right. for like video games or whatever. Yeah. Um, which, you, yeah, why not be pissed about that, right? Yeah. Um, $75,000 is not nothing, but if the movie's making hundreds of millions... Yeah, uh, I can imagine that happens all the time. Uh, you wouldn't think, now, you wouldn't think about that happening to somebody like Robin Williams. Yeah. Um, but I but guess... she was still pretty big at the time, I guess, but Aladdin, I mean, for me, that's kind of my, my doorway into Robin Williams is Genie and Aladdin. Yeah, mine was uh, uh, probably Miss Doubtfire, honestly. I freaking, I saw that movie young and loved it. Um but I was I was just reading I think it was on the Wikipedia page that if you combined like three or four of the early '90s non-Disney film animated films, they don't even come close to equaling uh, the uh, you know what uh, Disney's Beauty and the Beast in '91 made by itself. Yeah, it's like not even close. Yeah, yeah. And I, I can't remember the dude's name, um, which is a shame, but he's the guy that did, like, The Secret of Nim hmm. and uh, A Land Before Time. Oh, is it Don Bluth? Don Bluth, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he did uh, uh, All Dogs Go to Heaven. Yeah, All Dogs Go to Heaven. Yeah. And um, I've heard, or I've seen some stuff around, I haven't read extensively on this, about how, because he was sort of making these non-Disney animated films that were doing really well that kind of pushed Disney to up their game a little bit and mm-hmm. since then they just have been undisputed king of the mountain um, now it's like DreamWorks is the only real challenger to them I mean they bought Pixar right so right. Right. <laughs> they don't really have anybody to compete with yeah so um, something I wrote down one question I think that's a pretty good lead into it um it's getting getting a little meta here, and a phrase um, that popped into my head, just in th- in thinking about contextualizing this movie, the the phrase is the anesthetic of canonization. So, so we you know growing up, you read you know Walden, or or whoever. Uh, in school, you know, teachers oh, okay. teachers make you read it. Not well, Saturday <laughs> yeah, it's night. like what Saturday night, guys. Let's gather around, drink hot chocolate, and read the row. Uh, no, uh, so in school, it, it becomes canonized. You read, and that's just a random example I pulled the row, and therefore it's associated with school. I'm not gonna say everyone's read it, but a lot of people are familiar with that book, and it does not matter. Like it does not change anything because it is so accepted as brilliant its brilliance becomes meaningless we become numb to it 
Um, and so I'm thinking, uh, th- thinking about that concept with with relation to like an animated movie with a clear sort of uh, issue it wants to make people aware of, like Fern Gully. It's like does putting does making a movie uh, with a clear issue relegate it to the category of just like pure entertainment and 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 thereby kind of defang um, the substance like the the commentary of it because it be, it becomes easily dismissible as oh it's just a movie it's just entertainment it reminds me of the way uh, John Stewart used to kind of duck out of serious conversations and and say, you know, oh, we come on after Crank Yankers. Crank Yankers, we're just a comedy show. When really it was political satire that had some bite to it. Um, so just by being an animated kids movie, is it sort of negating any of its political intent? Because the category is, is entertainment. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but because of the time in which it comes out and the way in which it... I think I read a quote somewhere where maybe it was Wayne Young, one of the producers, said that we want to not make it too preachy, which is, I guess, another way of saying like kind of what you're talking about. We don't want to push too far. Like We kind of want to go right up to the edge of making a very serious statement or commitment to a cause and then kind of pull back a little bit. Bitch-ass backpedaling. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I actually, I wrote down in my notes that the the ending of this kind of is an example of that that kind of bitch-ass backpedal. Well, and those comments from the producer remind me of, is it Andrew Stanton who did Wally? Yeah. And and his sort of... Sort of the same thing. Trying to really depoliticize... It's like, oh, well, the robot, this is a movie about robots falling in love. It's like, yeah, kind of. Um, you know, you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. The, the producers don't want, it's like they want, clearly they made a movie with a political message, but in the press, they don't want the bad press of being someone who's trying to, like, you know, affect change in <laughs> yeah. children's minds. You don't want to be a tree hugger, do you? Uh, tree fucker. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, with a, a movie like this, uh, which is designed to, first and foremost, make a profit, and kind of something that it reminded me of that I hadn't thought about in a while, because it's not really a thing that is as big anymore, I guess it still happens, is that in the 90s, you would have a kid's movie, an animated film, and then there'd be a video game based on it. Yeah, I saw where this one happened. Yeah, and so you see the scene where Zach is, like, surfing on the leaf as it's coming down the tree or whatever, and you're like, oh, that's a video game level. Like, that's probably put there, one, to connect with, like, 90s kids who were into skateboarding or, or whatever, and then two, to translate into a video game, so, because that looks like something that would be fun to put in a video game. Right. Um... So you have this film that's, you know, primarily designed to, to do that. And, but it also does carry, in comparison to other films of the time, a really kind of sophisticated kind of environmental message, even though it's wrapped up in this kind of, this made-up mythology of the, the fairies and their relationship with the humans and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, it does have that, that central kernel of, you know, don't deforest, don't destroy these forests because, you know, there are these magical places and all this life lives here and it's beneficial to everyone to maintain it. Um, a little bit more, of a, a little simpler of a message than Wally, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, Although you do see the, you know, the guys who are running the big, running the industrial machinery yeah. are depicted in a lot of the same ways that the people in, the humans in Wally are depicted yeah, yeah. as just sort of fat, lazy, constantly eating. Um, and, and the place where they are looks, uh, here's another comparison to Avatar, looks very similar to the sort of uh, head co- base camp headquarter thing where Giovanni Ribisi's character is. Yeah. It's like aesthetically very similar with like the sort of slanted windows looking out. Um, yeah, it looked like consciously uh, yeah. similar. But that's one of the better jokes in the film is um, when they when we first meet Zach and he they're like, you hurry up and paint those X's on those trees. And then the, the fatter, because, you know, there's a skinny one and a fat one, like always, and mm-hmm. Timon and Pumbaa, whatever, right. whatever comparison Laurel you want. Hardy. Laurel and Hardy. Uh, and the fat one is, like, eating a piece of cake, and he's like, that kid's just not fit to be in the woods, and then, like, eats the cake. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're shown to be, like, the, uh, you know, big, strong lumberjacks who really just, these like, jerk-offs, you know, eating fast food inside right. this giant machine that's air-conditioned and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And something else about the movie that's kind of weird that I, I didn't know until I started reading about it is apparently it's meant to be set in Australia. Yeah, I just read that and I was like, how are we supposed to know that? There's no Australian accents or anything. And the only way I kind of found out is, we'll just read around on Wikipedia, and then the Mount, Mount, I forget what it's called. I mean, not Mount Doom, but like some weird name like Mount that. Dew. <laughs> Mountain Dew, yeah. Uh, the mountain that she sees when she goes above the canopy, it's a... Uh, I googled it just to see if it was a real thing, and it's a mountain in Australia. Oh, so cool! So it's meant to be like an Australian, like northern Australian rainforest, but the characters all have American accents. Uh, you're never sort of told. When that it's it, if you look on Wikipedia, it says it. Uh, it gives two release dates: one American, one Australian. So I'd be interested to know if there's like a Australian version where they have Australian <laughs> actors voicing it. That'd be cool. Uh, I don't know if they would bother with that, though. Yeah, it seems like a lot of trouble and money to go through. Yeah. Um, that'd be funny if it was, like, Christian Bill's first break. <laughs> Zach. Um, so uh, here's, here's another sort of uh, surface-level comparison that I found very interesting. Uh, the opening sequence is, like, this weird sort of car- uh, primitive-looking cartoon. Yeah. With a voiceover from the the older Magi or Magi or whatever her name is, and that is almost exactly what you see in the opening of M Night Shyamalan's Lady in the Water. Oh, <laughs> I mean, like I, I I invite people to just like pull both those up if you can find them on YouTube in two different tabs and watch them at the same time. It's like very similar and obviously Lady in the Water came later so it's the one that with the debt um, the Lady in the Water came later uh, but that, well I mean because that movie sort of has its own weird mythology 
Yeah, it's like nymphs or whatever, um, reaching, you know, the world, the human world. It's kind of similar, similarly themed. In the art, in the review I read from the New York Times, the reviewer talked about the similarities between Fern Gully and Little Mermaid. For the you know the same sort of similar similarities I just mentioned. Yeah, and you know Avatar, James Cameron came under some scrutiny and even had some lawsuits filed against him for supposedly copying this other work, so like Ferngoli and Pocahontas and uh, all this kind of stuff. But I think a big part of it is that this um, kind of narrative of the uh, person leaving their world to go into this strange new world. New, I didn't mean new wor- world in that way, but you know, like a, a different kind almost, of world. Almost a whole new world. Yeah. Um, and then they sort of... Uh, "Quote unquote, go native and sort of start adopting those that way of life. Mm-hmm. That's just a really old kind of narrative that's been around a yeah, long it seems, time. It seems like that's probably been a, a that story has been necessary and um, available as long as there's been like tribes or clans yeah. of people. You know, yeah, just you know, groups that are living in different ways. Right. So as long as you've had." Um, you know, different ways of life that are coming into contact. There's been people who have crossed over and sort of become a hybrid or whatever. Who who is it? I can't remember the famous writer who said there's two stories uh, going (laughs) going on an adventure and a stranger comes to town. Those are the two stories. That sounds really familiar. I can't remember. It's like Hemingway or something. It's like... uh, Probably. There's only two stories. I hit you and you hit the ground. (laughs) Uh, That's also Hemingway. What was he saying? If we fight, there's going to be two hits. Me hitting you and Kid Rock's ba-wada-ba playing in the background. (laughs) That's also Hemingway. Yeah. Or workaholics. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I forgot about that. Uh, One thing, and I didn't think about this until I started watching it. And the way I watched it was kind of interesting. It was... um, online thing where somebody had uploaded the VHS recording so it was watching it on a semi bad VHS copy but online mm. which was a little bit weird yeah um, but you know kind of took me back a little bit that's what you watched yeah oh cool I, and I bought the DVD yeah for four dollars yeah and, uh, was it like Barnes and Noble clearance yeah clearance yeah. item from goalie um, which is part of what inspired us to do it in the first place because it's like oh you've already got it yeah so. I just like happened upon it uh, and so we did so we did a real scientific uh, yeah, sort of we put a lot of process thought. we have here um, by the way that's how we pick that's how we pick the next movie is like eight seconds before we start recording <laughs> what are we going to do one of us says what do you want to do next week and then uh was you know whatever whatever we're thinking that's what we do sometimes and it's funny because like sometimes it'll be stuff that we talked about like in the past or like mm-hmm. brought up a month ago or whatever and then other times just like a random thing <laughs> we're like oh yeah that'll work yeah so, hey I bought Fern Gully <laughs> for no reason <laughs> which worked out because we had watched Avatar and it yeah kind of yeah, yeah. went together um, but something I'd forgotten before I started watching it was that. Like many kids' movies in the 90s, it's also musical. And there are several kind of musical numbers. 
are you going to talk about how you can't hear a damn word that's being said in the musical numbers? Uh, I wasn't, but, you know, they're not great. But I was going to talk about the fact that there are some well-known people behind the music, which is behind the music. Um, (laughs) The one thing is that a lot of the songs, original songs, including, like, Baddies Rap and Toxic Love, Tim Curry's big number. Tone Lokes is the best. Yeah, Tone Tone Lokes did his own song, you know, with producers and stuff. But those other songs, like Toxic Love and the... Uh, baddie rap and all that stuff were written by Thomas Dolby who did She Blinded Me With Science Um, nice and then also A Dream Worth Keeping um, Sheena Easton and then Some Other World by Elton John wow so that's a little interesting yeah it's starting to feel a little We Are The World you know when when you, you see it's sort of underdog compared to Disney and it seems like you've got these sort of ethically minded artists um, not volunteering I'm sure they were paid but wanting to contribute to a film with with a political message they agree with and to be in the 90s I mean Christian Slater he was hot in the 90s yeah Tim Curry was well established by then uh, Robin Williams of course Cheech and Chong coming back together I think they that was the first thing they had done together in like a long time yeah and, and then not to mention the white hot heat of Samantha Mathis <laughs> Tone Loke, who would then spiral this into an appearance in Ace Ventura. And uh, let's not forget Blank Check. Blank Check. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, the music, and you can talk about the quality of it a yeah, little bit more. Uh, I, like, I watched the DVD on a, on a Blu-ray player. Like, this is a new, you know, 2019 experience. And both Jensen and I had very a very hard time deciphering any of the lyrics to the songs. Uh, so, whatever. <laughs> Just a bad mix or something. And it, and you can tell that the, the songs, they're kind of going for that Disney thing of having the big signature song like A Whole New World or Under the Sea or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, um, and, they, and they have, that they have Robin Williams rap just like bummed me out because that was such a 90s thing to do is to have the, the comedy person, the comedic relief, do like a rap song. Right, because it's a laughable genre. Yeah, because it's not a serious genre. It's, <laughs> right. it's something that's to be done as a novelty. Um, and he, he does it. I keep thinking about Miss Doubtfire for some reason. His characters, that's how he gets the job on the TV show, is like some high up producer sees him rapping with the, like the fake dinosaurs. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Anyway. It's unfortunate. That you have Tone Loke, an actual rapper, with like wow. at least two hits <laughs> under his belt. Yeah, with um, the exact same beat. <laughs> yeah. Funky Cole Medina and Wild Thing are the same song. Sure. <laughs> I did. Is that a controversial opinion? No, no. I was just thinking if there's anything any more I wanted to say about the song, or any of the songs really, because they're kind of they're forgettable, right? I remembered the whole Robin Williams rap from when I was a kid. Um, but I didn't remember anything about it. What? So he says check up from the neck up in the rap, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doesn't he, at one point he just like, there's a cut to him, to Batty, and he says something like humans are numb below the brain. From the brain down. From the brain down. I think that's what he says. Um, 
Yeah, there's like he's not a fan of humans, and it, that's something we we should talk about. Is that Baggy's character is sort of kind of gruesome in, in some ways. He has yeah. a radio transmitter in his brain because right. he was in a, a biology lab, right? And he's escaped from the lab. He says, and his whole rap is mostly about how he's been abused by humans, right? Um, and when Zach shows up, he he even tells Krista like, "Kill it, like get rid of it." Um, so it's a little yeah, strange. A, am I dead? And she says no. And Batty says, "But we can fix that for you." Yeah, like Jesus. So he's very antagonistic toward humans because he's been, you know, kind of prodded and tortured. Yeah, and that's part of the comedic relief is that he gets like radio transmissions in his brain from the the wires that are sticking out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's a little disturbing to be in, in a kids movie when you think about it like that. Well, it's it, we were talking about the quality of the animation and the movie starts like I said with that sort of primitive looking animation that's like Lady in the Water. But like the title card and then the transition to that primitive looking animation is kind of dark and cool. Um, yeah. and it, and it did it felt a little bit uh, out of sync with the rest of the, you know, the bulk of the film. Um but it, it sort of sets the tone as as a little bit darker than I was expecting. Um, just that, like I said, just that opening title sequence. So yeah, that's when they talk about you know Hexus being like primordial evil, you know, born of the cosmos or whatever, and then they trap him in the tree. I thought that was really interesting that he sort of comes from the tree. You know, like you see the wood is cut, and then he sort of oozes from it. So obviously the the loggers or whatever have released it and so the evil I think this is very interesting in terms of of how the earth is depicted on film the evil in the film comes from the earth it's natural it's not I mean obviously a bad guy the uh, the guys cutting the forest down are portrayed as bad guys Mm -hmm. but the true villain is this natural thing whatever it is sort of amorphous blob uh, that that it, it, when when the film ends is re-trapped in this tree or something yeah uh, which which I thought was a very interesting choice in a movie that seems you know kind of cliche cut and dry uh, nature good industry bad um, it, it seems a little a little smart, uh, you know, to have this, the true villain be um, part of the natural world, but it's it's something that is unleashed by, you know, the industrial yeah, deforestation. Kind of carelessness. Right. And even in the, um, I can't remember exactly how it's said, but in those opening credits, it says something about how, you know, because evil always comes along with good or whatever it would be that Hexus was born or whatever um, and there is that implication that there is that kind of good balanced with evil but the evil you know is being contained in this kind of um, like you say this sort of natural way there's also the kind of if you wanted to draw a direct sort of metaphor you could talk about uh, oil since Hexus does 
look just like oil, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and and isn't like there a, a moment where Zach like dips his finger into a pond or something, and he and he like does he does he say oil? Or does he does I it? Think, it sort of looks I like think oil. So because it, it's when they when they first start to notice like pollution near Fermagoli because the machine is sort of coming closer. Um, and there is that kind of thing where whereas the um, the fairies are very much uh, one with creation and they uh, their big thing is to help stuff grow. When Zach asks Krista, like, what do you do? She says, like, oh, just, you know, help stuff grow. <laughs> Hang out in the forest. Um, Hexus is, you know, in this very, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Monarchian, is that the word? Like, where there's, it's one side and the other. This kind of uh, dichotomy is very much into destruction and, like, very into the smoke and the fumes coming out of the machine and like yeah, even like sucks on the smoke and it's his mother's milk yeah and, <laughs> yeah. It, and like uses the oil in the machine to like make himself uh, you know more sort of colossal right so yeah and we were talking a little bit before about the political context in 1992 yeah and it seems like I, you know we haven't done a ton of research on this but it seems like yeah, people picked up on the obvious fact that this is a politically, you know, an environmentally charged movie, a movie with a message, but it doesn't seem the same as like the rhetoric we heard with Wally of like this is bullshit liberal propaganda. We sh- you should not be subjecting our kids to this sort of thing. Um and I think that's a very crucial distinction. Um or shift culturally between it seems seems sort of both sides of the political spectrum are acknowledging that yes this is a movie with a political message or or rather uh, I'm saying that wrong this is a movie with a message um, that that does have some political implications but it's not this thing that people are going to scream about on Twitter as you know, fully entrenched in their political camp. Yeah. Um, and, and I just don't, you, I don't think you can make a movie today for kids so uh, politically charged and expect people to talk about it in any sort of rational way. Um, like, like you saw a little bit of that with Wally, but that was still 11 years ago. Yeah. You know, things are different even from then, let alone 1992. If, like, if Wally was made this year, there would be boycotts and right. people burning Disney property. Wally or hates Disney Trump, you know, is yeah. what it would say or something. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know exactly what it is. Obviously, the Internet, I'm sure, has a lot to do with it. But something major has changed. In, and I'm talking specific, I mean, generally something major has changed in political discourse, but specifically about environmental, uh, how we talk about environmental issues. It doesn't seem like in the early 90s it was as left and right on this issue. No, and you even had like Captain Planet. Right. Uh, right. Which, if that, again, if Captain Planet was in 2019, people would be like, this is liberal propaganda. Right. And I think a big part of it is that uh, environmental discourse in the 90s was so much more pro, 
um, sort of action to, you know, conserve trees or like and it, and it's close always, the hole in the ozone layer. And but it's always it seems like in the in the Fern Gully era, and like I said last week, I re, I think I said this when while we were recording, uh, how I remember my elementary school teachers being kind of uh, aware of like the Amazon rainforest issue yeah. and teaching us about, I remember learning about the canopy and, and all yeah. the different types of life and all that stuff. And so it was an issue you could talk about in elementary school, which, you know, you can't talk about climate change. I think, I mean, you can and you should, but people don't because it's so politically charged. Yeah. Um, so, so clearly it was a different, and it's not like I went to some like super progressive school, you know, this was something people in middle Tennessee felt comfortable talking about with children. Yeah. Uh, and, but my point was it's, it's always, it was always about the Amazon rainforest. Yeah. It, it was, you, you know, it's space that you were, it's, it is, doesn't have anything to do with America, which of course it does. But, uh, I think the fact that it's elsewhere is, uh, is a big reason why people could talk about it without getting their, yeah, because they, they always the tell you like, and I think that that's another thing that's changed is our sort of awareness of the the chain of capital that sort of goes into deforestation. Is back then you'd be told like this is how much the forest is destroyed every minute or whatever, and here's what it's used for, and isn't that awful? But you never really, or I don't remember being told like who was doing it, why they were doing it, like American corporations or whatever. Like wasn't being told how. The products that I would use on a daily basis are somehow tied to that kind of industry, all that right. kind of stuff. Which, when you bring in that sort of level of, of personal accountability, even though you know this whole discourse about how your individual choices could can't really save the world, right? You like because you're turning off the sink or you're brushing your teeth doesn't mean you're going to save the wells or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you you didn't have that kind of personal accountability, and there wasn't any level of kind of like guilt that went into seeing these things you didn't feel accountable you just kind of would see and be like that's horrible someone should really do something and then you'd kind of go play kickball or whatever right. you wouldn't really think about it too much whereas today like you're saying like telling children about climate change can be a really jarring kind of scary thing to the point where you know you have like the sunrise movement and these kids like starting political movements in order to try to affect some sort of change because they're learning about these things um and it's popping up kind of in culture now where you have in the, the new season of Big Little Lies on HBO, there's a subplot of one of the, the women, Laura Dern's character, her uh, daughter has a panic attack at school because their teacher is telling them about climate change. So she passes out, <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's the, the discourse has sort of changed and it's become more urgent because of time constraints and because people have realized that you know the the politics of it, or the lack of any sort of political support for these kinds of movements, is the issue in, in a lot of ways. Um, it's become this sort of third rail where if you even think climate change is real, then you're you know lefty scum or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in the '90s, everyone was kind of on the same page of like, yeah, we should save the trees. Yes, jungles are cool. You know, um, these animals are cute. We should conserve them, that, that sort of stuff. A, another big issue, uh, in addition to the internet, is the recession, I think. Um, you know, post-recession, post-9-11. Um, 
where anything that questions, you know, in capital letters, the American way or the American economy, respectively, uh, is bad. And so if, if looking at, um, if not cutting down trees is going to negatively impact the economy, fuck that. That's, you know, that's the sort of post-recession thinking because jobs, 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 jobs. Um, but but a, another thing I, I noticed in the film that's sort of related to the time frame is that there seems to be an emphasis on like generational differences. You have, I, th- I can never remember how they say her name. Is it Maggie? I think so. Um, sort of passing on, uh, first passing away, and 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 also sort of passing on her legacy of this magical, you know, uh, sort of spiritual connection with the land uh, to Krista, and you get the feeling with Maggie that she's sort of representative of a kind of an archetype of of kind of the old old wisdom you know and and I think in 1992 a little a little more easily a writer of a film like this could assume that old people say say the the eight-year-olds watching this that their grandparents uh, had an experience a, a different orientation to the natural world that they were there were still people who lived in a time before like automobiles were normal and you know before the sort of um, kind of postmodern turbo capitalism that sort of came to fruition uh, after World War II and the suburbanization of America. Uh, and that's not true anymore. You know what I'm saying? Uh, that's not... Uh, grandparents that grew up in the 50s, 60s, and 70s in the onset of that suburbanization and, and you know, hyper-capitalism don't have that experience anymore. And so... One one difference I think between now and 1992 is it seems a little optimistic to assume that there that young people have uh, old an older generation to to learn from. I don't think they do. I think they got to make it up on their on their on their own um, or learn. They have to learn on their own and they have to go back. They have to go back further than their immediate family or their grand you know, their grandparents, because they, the type of connection to the world, the type of orientation I'm talking about, is is older than young people's grandparents now. Yeah. The grandparents now are, like, arguing on Facebook. Yeah. About, like, stuff in the neighborhood. Right. And they're watching HGTV and... Yeah, Fox you know, News. Yeah. Um, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and what you, what you said a little bit ago about um, this kind of trees versus jobs thing, where it's like you can either save the environment or you can make money. You can't do both, that kind of thing. Um, that Some of that, that came up in the uh, eco-terrorism week when we were talking about um, if a tree falls and this kind of... Uh, it, and it's a lot like coal miners talking about like October Sky and, and just 
you know, real life in general, where you have this way of life that's so deeply intertwined with, with capitalism that when you threaten it in any kind of way, you become the enemy because not only are you standing in the way of quote-unquote progress, but you're standing in the way of someone quote-unquote providing for their family and earning a living. And that's the way they always put it, earning a living, feeding my kids, providing for my family, all that sort of stuff. And that's an inherently conservative position because it, it what that says is that there is no other way to do those things. There's yeah. no, and no more responsible way to do it, those it's things. It's so funny to even use the word conservative when you have like conservation. Right. Like in the same thing, which they're so opposed to one another. Right, right. Um, but, you know, and if a tree falls in, and then uh, Richard Powers, the overstory, which we've talked about a little bit, and I'm finally getting around to, to almost finishing, uh, it's in there too of these loggers saying, you know, this is our way, you can't take our way of life, quote unquote, away from us. And people don't stop to sort of, well, not, I won't say, won't generalize, but a lot of people don't stop and think how their way of life, quote unquote, is hurting other people, hurting their environment, um, the sort of negative connotations it has, because all they know is that it keeps them uh, sort of comfortable. It lets them buy their kid the new PlayStation. It lets them update their iPhone every year. Um you know, whatever it lets them buy whatever tropical fruit they want all year round. That sort of stuff. They don't. They don't question it. And you know, I've I've actually, I've been sort of wrestling with this thought uh, that 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 what you just said reminds me of is like we've sort of been operating in this podcast under the assumption, a, a, a pragmatic assumption that that movies kind of operate today. The way I think uh, uh, Joseph Campbell says, you know, as sort of replacements for mythology, ritual. This is where we get our stories. This is how we understand the world. It's through, you know, hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of stories on film. And on some level, I think that's undeniable that movies function as mythology. But on another level, I th- I'm not, I don't I don't completely agree with him because there's a difference, like like what he's talking about in sort of primitive like rituals. There's no disconnect between the story that's being told or the myth that's being enacted and real life. Right, so you enact this ritual and you see the next day or the next morning you wake up the intimate connection between the story that's been told, uh, which you know, which is maybe about the animals that that happen to be in the area of this tribe or whatever, uh, and and you understand that this animal has a spirit or whatever, you know, whatever the story is, but it's right there. And that there's an intimate link between the story that's being told and and the environment you're in. It's different today because, and this is sort of what I was getting at earlier when I talked about the aesthetic of canonization and the categorization of movie as the sort of uh, defanging of the commentary. No one... Everyone knows movies are fiction. 
and and we have this category called entertainment, which has this built-in separation from the real world. So no one's watching Fern Gully and immediately use, using that as a tool to understand the world. So that, that's an important distinction, I think, to make from Joseph Campbell's point. Um, I mean, clearly Joseph Campbell's an idiot. I've just disproven it. Uh, no. Obviously, like I said, on some level, he's he's very correct. But there's a that distinction I think has to be made. And but it's a sort of a pessimistic thought in terms of this podcast because it's like if people if pe- it's like people are only going to um, sort of use movies as important mythology in their lives if they're already primed to do that. And if they're not, it's just going to be viewed as entertainment. And so there has to be something further back, something deeper in people that determines whether they are primed to experience a movie as a meaningful myth and and let it affect their outlook um, or or not. Uh, And like I said, that's sort of a pessimistic observation because it's like, what the fuck are we doing here other than, you know, preaching to the choir? of, you know, 12 people or whatever it is. Uh, anyway. Kind of, I, I watched a few minutes of a, like a, this YouTube clip of a, a debate. It's not really a debate. It's more of like a discussion from like the 70s between uh, Noam Chomsky and Michel Foucault. <laughs> yeah, where it's like um, a translator. Yeah, 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 and they have like the earpieces in yeah. and Chomsky looks well, he's less gray, but he kind of looks the same, but he's way more active and speaking way more quickly. Yeah. He's, like, doing a lot of hand motions and stuff. Yeah. Um, and I think part of the discussion, and like I said, I only watched a couple minutes of it because I was like, this is weird. I want to see how this works. <laughs> um, and I'd actually never heard, heard Foucault speak before, which is, he sounds like a French guy. I don't know what I was expecting. But I think part of the discussion was about um, whether or not people have the sort of inherent ethical sort of moral compass so to speak or is it all just sort of like socially ingrained and constructed given their environment and all that sort of stuff uh, which kind of gets to what you're talking about of whether or not you look to things like films or stories in whatever way that you're experiencing them as a way of understanding the world like is that something that we learn to do or is it just something that we do kind yeah, of it, apropos of nothing like it's just we're born with it right and it's almost like is your is your sort of Soul or whatever, and an accretion of you know of very practical sort of experiences, or is it is there a you that exists and then becomes augmented through that? It, it's a huge question of like, I don't know what philosophy has been asking for ever. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, yeah. But, I mean, that's a question, I think, that all kind of artists need to ask. And that's a question we've brought up in different iterations a hundred times, especially with Mother, Darren Aronofsky's film, um, early in the podcast about, it's like, yeah, this movie's badass, and it's right, but it's like, who is it addressing? And so what this iteration of this question is asking is like, even if it addressed the right people, would that matter? 
because can those people be addressed? You know, or yeah. is it possible to change people's minds? Um, and then it's, that's complicated further by Ferngoli because, you know, it's made for children. So you kind of have to ask, well, are children really, you know, and, and there's all sorts of debates about, like, what can you really, how much can children handle from, like, a intellectual standpoint for this sort of, like, higher levels of, of thinking? Um, so you have the question of, are they really receiving this message in a way that's useful, or is it just, like, you know, like, play, like, kind of going in their head, and they're like, oh, well, they stopped the bad guy, that's good. In this instance, the bad guy was trying to cut trees, whereas, you know, Scar is trying to take over the throne or whatever, like, right. whatever it may be. Right, um, and they, they conflate those, and they're both just movies. Yeah. And that's the, sort of what I'm saying when I say the category of entertainment yeah, defangs yeah. it. and they have, and it's that, the just sort of general... Uh, narrative of there's a good guy and a bad guy good guys trying to stop the bad guy right the end um and, so, and, and are they trying to change children's minds or are they trying to get in are they trying to change adults minds later on you know what I'm saying it's like trying to get in early yeah. and then when you think back you're like oh from going right Right, you're in the future, and you're like chainsawing down a redwood, and you're like, "Wait a minute, I'm the bad guy here." Um, I'm. This is such a Zach Young move to be cutting down this tree. Yeah, but you know, it's one of those questions that you know we're not going to answer. It's really big and difficult. Yeah. Um, but you know, people trying to put these messages out there um, at whatever age, and it's actually way easier I would assume to get a, a child to, to buy into this message than an adult that's already kind of entrenched in whatever thought system they have right that's how you get people talking about Wally as right. liberal propaganda yeah and, and unless the adult happens to buy in to, to the same political orientation that the film has yeah, yeah. And, and then again you're just preaching to the choir yeah and then just to reiterate again I think we said this a lot but when we talk about it, we have to use these qualifiers of like belief in climate change, belief that there needs to be some sort of, you know, mobilization to try to uh, change the way that people live their lives in a more sort of environmentally conscious and sort of harmonious way with the planet. Um, you have to describe that as being a left position because, at least in the United States, it's what it is. It's it's seen as being this kind of radical left position because even those on the uh, you know quote unquote left in the democratic party are it's, really and on it's, that side it's because it disrupts the, the, the necessities of climate change disrupt the economy and America identifies itself as an economy it's a, it's a business not a country America yeah. is open for business yeah the business of America is business. Right, right. Uh, so, yeah, and and so, you know, our position has kind of always been that that's not, you know, they talk about it being politicized. That's sort of like the the death sentence is that once something becomes politicized, it gives everyone an excuse to not pay attention to it because it's like, oh, how do you know what the bias is? And, like, the fact that we have to teach bias in, like, English 101 classes kind of makes me throw up in my mouth now because it's such, like, a 
a crutch people use to beat people with of like, well, you don't, you're not aware of your biases. Blah, blah, blah. Right. I, you know, I don't think wanting humanity to go extinct because we've continually fucked up for you know 400 years well, is really a somehow this a came bias. Up, this came up last week or the week before too. There's this very American idea that you just take two positions, divide them in half, and that is the truth, and that is bullshit. No. Um, it, it's the, it's similar to the idea of like journalistic objectivity, which is another idea that's complete bullshit. Um, as if truth were objective, you know. You talk about truth, I and mean, it's a crazy idea. Like no one experiences objectivity. The world, as we know it, is only experienced through subjects, and to and so to speak of something objective is just is nonsense and so to think that this one sort of endeavor journalism is is like the exception or, or science I guess is another one um, these are the the privileged the few privileged endeavors that can sort of step outside of that human limitation of subjective no it's just more of that human limitation that subjectivity um, I can't remember how I got started on that now. Well, it's, a, it's something that, like, people, usually people with sort of a uh, fascistic, right-leaning attitude will say, like, postmodernism and deconstruction ruined everything because now there's no, there's no, you know, completely 100% objective truth anymore. And, and oh, yeah, there you, never yeah. was. I've probably, like, ranted about this before. Uh, yeah, I think you said it, it might have been last week. But you know that that's the problem is that there never was. It's just there was there was enough of a group consensus that people were taking it for granted that that right. was how things are and should be forever. Right. right. And, and and people's willingness to run with an erroneous belief does not make it true. Yeah. I mean, practically, it kind of does. It doesn't make it true. It makes it normal. It makes it normalized. Yeah. makes it seem true, but it, uh, it's not true. Yeah, I mean, you have... You know, one of the famous examples is, like, the, the DSM, the Diagnostical Statistical Manual, whatever right. it is, the thing they use in psychology to diagnose conditions. Like, homosexuality was in that up until, like, the 90s. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. Uh, maybe later than that. Um, so, you know, the, the conventional wisdom is not... You should not be your signpost for what is sort of true and good because the conventional wisdom is only conventional because enough people sort of agreed to go along with it. It doesn't mean it's necessarily the right thing. Um, right. I think, I think it's Henry Miller, the writer I really like, uh, calls it the something like the democratic disease. Uh, reduce, it basically says we reduce everything to the level of the herd. Like, it's like we think it's not true unless you know lowest common denominator can grasp it so it's like the news is written on a sixth grade level you know <laughs> yeah. uh, so so if, you know people who read at a sixth grade level can't understand it somehow it's not true yeah uh, but and, and that's sort of related to what I was saying earlier about you know you take two positions divide it in half and that's the truth sometimes Sometimes the liberals are right, you know, uh, uh, and see, it's sort of my instinct to say sometimes the conservatives are right. It's like, no, they're not. 
Uh, Sometimes they uh, sort of stumble into being less wrong. <laughs> right. right. Uh, but it has nothing to do with people being liberals or conservatives. It has everything to do with something being uh, demonstrable. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, we're get, it seems like the children's movies get us into the darkest territory. Well, it's because they're, like we've been saying, they're written on that level where they need to be almost kind of, uh, you know, mythological in how they're telling stories. Right? And cryptic. Yeah, you know, they paint with the, sort of the broadest brush. And, yeah. and so that leaves a lot of room for interpretation or whatever it is we're doing here. Uh, projection of insecurities. <laughs> yeah, whatever it is. Um, um, I was gonna say something that I can't remember. Yeah, whatever. We'll, we'll we'll come back to it. But yeah, the, when it comes to this this movie, I mean, it was pretty much what I expected it to be. It was um, pretty, you know, uh, quote unquote woke for a movie from 1992. Yeah, again, like we said with Avatar, uh, it has the right bad guys, um, mostly. Tim Curry has the right... Right. Uh, it has uh, maybe even a, a more interesting bad guy in the Hexus character than, than Avatar. Yeah. Uh, but, it, you know... Because it's so sort of... Going back to this kind of primordial, it's this kind of uh, evil that exists for no reason other than to be evil, um, which is sort of... You know, a thing you can only kind of get away with in a kids' movie and like Halloween movies. Right. Probably my favorite part of this movie is at the end when Hexus has become this sort of giant, freaking skeleton-looking thing, and this—it seems like the suggestion the movie sort of makes through the action Krista takes is a little, a little in line with some of the eco activism we saw in the Eco Terrorism Week. Uh, it seems like the suggestion is, as as Krista does, fly right into the belly of the beast and plant a tree. You know, <laughs> yes. uh, which seems like it, you know, sort of saying you've got to go, you've got to get inside the monster, you've got to infiltrate the monster and take it out from the inside. Take it out from. You think from Men the in Black stole that? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, but but you know, it does remind me of Miss Doubtfire. Uh, in no, I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, I mean that is sort of the moral of the story is if you want to combat the big scary thing is you have to sort of like you're saying fly into its gullet <laughs> penetrate it <laughs> yeah um, yeah so it, you know there's a lot of interesting stuff going on like what we're talking about with uh, you know Hexus being this evil that's born kind of of the earth it's mm-hmm. not alien in any kind of way it comes from the same place that the fairies and their like wonderland with all their berries and stuff uh, comes from and it and it ultimately returns to that and they you know they leave the door open for a sequel right because maybe they cut down this next tree mm-hmm. whatever it may be yeah. um, but I want to talk about the, uh, the ending a little bit more because I mentioned earlier that I think it's an example of the bitch ass backpedal. Oh yeah, because you know, like Wally, because these are kids' movies and they have to have some sort of like uh, positive turn to end on. Um, we're at this moment where Texas is kind of 
not won, but has destroyed a lot of the forest and has finally been defeated. And you're left with this like clear cut region with the one tree. And then Zach gets turned back into a human and he seems like he's gonna, you know, he takes the other two guys and he's like, it's stuff's got to change boys. And, uh, and they're <laughs> walking away. That. Things have got to change guys. And, and they're walking away and then he plants the seed. And of course the seed grows immediately into this like big, beautiful new tree. And it's sort of implied that, everything's going to be just fine. And what they don't mention is like, you know, in a realistic way, like, no, it's not like we talked about the end of Avatar is like, yeah, the Na'vi win, but what's this, who's to say that Earth doesn't just come back in force and just blow them all away? Um, so it, it does have that kind of backpedally thing where it seems like for a moment it's going to end on a very kind of somber but kind of optimistically hopeful note but then it just sort of goes back over the top, and you're like, oh, okay, everything's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so cue the Elton John music. <laughs> right. Let's all go home. Right. It's like it, it has to conform. There's more pressure on it to conform to the conventions of it as a commercial entertainment product than there is incentive to tell a... Um, sincere you know like a sincere climate parable um, obviously Um, and it's sort of you know as always we go back to uh, the Urtext first reformed and it it kind of because the end of that movie is not a bitch ass backpedal it's sort of a third thing like a different whole nother sort of turn that it takes yeah, um, it's 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 a transcendence of something. It's yeah. going somewhere else. Yeah, it's sort of like uh, you know Kobayashi Maru the whole experience. It's just like going <laughs> off in a different direction. Sort of, I accept neither premise. I'm doing my own thing. Um, whereas a movie like uh, like Night Moves kind of goes doesn't backpedal at all and sort of leaves you in this very like dark place at right. the end of the movie with with it has you have some sort of questioning and sort of ambiguity but for the most part you kind of get where the movie's at yeah when it ends yeah um and then from Wally, wally other movies you have um kind of the necessary insertion of a happy ending um mm-hmm. also interstellar is like that yeah another children's movie <laughs> yeah another children's movie interstellar yeah. Yeah, uh, and you. I, I think this has a lot to do with the genre constraints. Uh, Interstellar is a huge Hollywood blockbuster. Needs a got to slap on that happy ending. Children's movies have to have the happy ending. Uh, Kelly Reichardt's independent drama that no one saw. Night moves does not have to. It's free to tell the truth. Yeah. Uh, um, and you just you wonder. I wonder how we'd feel. Let's say Fern Gully did exactly what we wanted it to theoretically, and has a sort of maybe a little bit more ambiguous, a little more honest ending about uh, potential harm returning to the to the rainforest. Would we like this movie? You know, would you would you like that? 
uh, I, you know, I don't know. I would wager to say. Would you like, like it when a, you were a kid? Yeah, I, was I, say, I, I would wager that as a kid, no, but now I would have been like, that's cool. Yeah, that's really uh, um, But, yeah, I mean, like you're saying with the genre, the constraints of the genre, like they have to include that or else it doesn't make money, right? It's so interesting, too, how people have different orientations to movies and how so a certain type of person doesn't like a movie if it doesn't conform to their expectations of what it's going to be so I watch Fern Gully and I expect it's a children's movie it's, it should have a happy ending they should save this rainforest um, and, and then people I think it has to do with how kind of saturated your mind is with film culture people who are you know uh, movie buffs or film geeks or whatever like us in some ways um, because because we've gotten so used to it we're not satisfied if it does conform to the expectations we want our expectations to be breached in some way yeah you know uh, and so that that's a really interesting uh, you know, it's just kind of the opposite orientation. It's like, oh, I have this set of expectations. If it's not met, it's a bad movie. And and then on the other side, I have a set of expectations. If they are met, it's a bad movie because it's just the same stuff. And and then on the other side, again, it's the same stuff. So it's so it's good because I like the same stuff because this is all meaningless anyway. And it's kind of, you know, in a way, that's part of what made Game of Thrones so popular. Is that it? it was killing off major characters, sometimes multiple ones at a time. Um, and that was something that people weren't used to. They were used to, like, maybe one major character will die, like, four seasons in, and it'll be right. a really dramatic, like, seasons-long arc and all this Dexter's, kind of stuff. Dexter's wife in season four. Yeah, or, like, yeah. you know, Tony Soprano maybe dying during the finale, right. stuff like that. Right. Um, but Game of Thrones sort of threw that on its head and was like... No, sometimes people are killed for stupid, like, politically motivated reasons, and this is what that looks like. And so Ned Stark dies at the end of season one, and everybody's like, oh my god, but Sean Bean, he's going to be the guy, and everybody loved him. Um, it reminds me of Psycho, and... Yeah, the, like, killing Janet Lee in Psycho. Uh, yeah, which was the first example I can think of where they use a celebrity to endorse the film, and then kill off her character within like, the first hour. Like a hour. third of the way through it. Yeah. It's like, what the um, fuck is this movie going to be about? And it, it's really sort of... And it's one of those things where you can only... That can only be sort of the new big twist a couple of times before it, too, becomes its own kind of genre, mm-hmm. its own sort of, like, conventional thing. Um, you know, but there is that kind of... People like being shocked, but they don't want to be too shocked, I guess. I don't know, like, with... Uh, like the Avengers at the end of uh, Infinity War, like half the superheroes die, but you know, like that's not what's gonna. You know, they're gonna like come back, or like mm-hmm. some of them are gonna come back, or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, the funniest thing was like Spider Man dies, but they had already uh, contracted whatever that kid's name is that plays Spider Man to to make a new movie. Um, Garfield, or is it a different? No, it's uh, the new the new younger guy. Can't yeah, remember his they, name. Uh, there's no Tom Tom. Tom Stoppard? No, I don't remember. Tom Stoppard? It's um, uh, a playwright, right? Yeah, Rosencrantz and Gilderstern. Gilderstern did. 
That's literally all I know about Tom Stomford. Is that he wrote that? And Shakespeare in Love? Or is that part of Shakespeare? I don't know. <laughs> I don't remember either. Uh, Tom Holland is the new... Well, he's not new. He's been Spider-Man for There's a few years. There's no lag time in between iterations of Spider-Man. That's for no, damn no. sure. Or the any, is Tobey Maguire. any superhero characters anymore, because that's all they can fucking do. Yeah, which is, you know, a whole other... We, we still need to do an episode on something in the, the, in Marvel, the Marvel universe. universe. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. We couldn't do all of it because they've made like a million movies, but... Yeah, I'm trying to think of something that might have some relevance, and, and you, you'll be the better judge of that. I <laughs> because I actually watch these any of these monstrosities, these loose, baggy monsters. Um, so yeah, the, we'll have to do that at some point, because that is... You want to talk about Campbell and films being the new myths for a culture. That is the American myth at this point, is these... Yeah these superheroes and their their trials and tribulations with one another a group of uh, elite you know elite white people who uh, have the powers to save everyone yeah that sounds about right yeah it's sort of like it's a thing where like you just keep having to make a bigger bad guy right like you can't because so many things have been shown. It's like Dragon Ball Z. Like, you have to have the new big thing to come. Like, I'm not a big Dragon Ball Z person, but I know that's how that show worked. Mm-hmm. But it always reminded me of uh, one of the Treehouse of Horror Simpson episodes where the aliens take over. And how they get turned back is one guy, one human, has a board with a nail in it. And he chases them all back onto the spaceship and they leave. And as they're leaving, one of the aliens is like... One day somebody will come after you with an even bigger board, with an even bigger nail, <laughs> and it's just that that same kind of idea of you just yeah. have to have the bigger board with the nail in it every time. Yeah. And at some point, it's, it gets so silly; it's like these stakes don't even matter anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, or like professional wrestling, where like people just jumping off higher and higher things until you have like a dude jumping off a building. Um. So yeah, all this is related to Ferngully and. In many ways. It's so strange that we'd be getting off topic. I think we might have set a record with I Heart Huckabees last week in terms of time spent not talking about the film. Yeah, and that's also... Maybe not. Maybe the first one, first reformed, is... But I think I Heart Huckabees is, if not the longest episode, then one of like the three longest episodes. Mm. And now we're up to... Uh, I did, like, rough calculation, and we have, like, a day and a half of recorded material <laughs> okay. of just us talking about shit, uh, which is kind of... Man, imagine if we, didn't, if we didn't edit these down from, like, the four-hour cuts. <laughs> <laughs> these 48-hour sessions we have, we didn't chop any of that out. That's, yeah, we don't. I do minimal editing. So... Yeah. You get the, the, the rough, uncut, mm-hmm. full Well, uh, I, don't, I don't have anything else written down. Literally the only thing I had written down was the comment, uh, comment I made about an hour ago. So. <laughs> so you came well prepared. I've just been winging it, man. I will, it wasn't because of the movie, but I did fall asleep watching this. Um, but it was just because I was tired and I went back and like watched the 10 minutes I missed or whatever it was. So I woke up, um, or I fell asleep like near the climax of the movie 
And then I woke up like when Hexus is all huge and stuff, and I was like, oh, <laughs> I have missed something. So basically, you're saying you had a climax while you were sleeping? Yeah, I had a, yeah, a nocturnal emission. Nocturnal emission impossible. <laughs> That's the next uh, Tom Cruise movie coming out. These nocturnal CO2 emissions. <laughs> um, so, nah, maybe I'll leave that for next time. I, I had something else that, that was unrelated to the film that I wanted to talk about, uh, but we'll, we'll throw in the next episode about greenways. Can you shoehorn it in to leave no trace? Uh, yeah, I think it might feel better with that, actually, because okay. uh, it, it, it sort of goes along with stuff we talked about in I Heart Huckabees. Um, well, okay, well, there's one more thing I wanted to bring up, and that mm-hmm. is it's July 7th, and Charlie Culberson of the Atlanta Braves <laughs> has earlier today made an outstanding play that everyone should watch. Uh, you should just Google or YouTube or whatever you do to find highlights, and you'll see an amazing uh, throw from left center field. Uh, anyway... Fucking look it up. It's more important than what we've talked about. <laughs> Watch it on repeat. I, my, my brother sent me the link from Twitter, the one I sent you, and it just goes and goes. And I've probably watched it 55 times. Because <laughs> it happens so quickly, but then you're like, wait a minute. So sort of like the I, Kennedy assassination. You're like, I have to see this again. <laughs> what did I just see? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, next week. Uh, we will be talking about Leave No Trace uh, from 2018, so Back to the Future from 92 back up to a couple years ago, or I guess last year, uh, directed by Deborah Granick, who did Winter's Bone, which is a, a really great, um, was sort of a, kind of an independent film. A bit of a sleeper. Sort of. Yeah, I mean, um, it was uh, Jennifer Lawrence before... A ton of people knew who she was. Yeah, that was kind of her her breakout role, yeah. and she's really good. And John Hawks was excellent in that movie. Did he, did he get an Oscar nomination did. for that movie? Playing did he make Teardrop won. Dolly? Yeah. No, he didn't win. He was nominated. I can't remember who he lost to, but he's really good in that film. But so yeah, watch uh, Winner's Bone, but also watch Leave No Trace yeah. um, with uh, uh, I forgot his name, Ben Foster. Um, who's weirdly just kind of like a personal favorite between us. I feel like yeah, we talked about him He before. makes we a lot of good love stuff. Ben Foster. Um, Heller High Water is really yeah. great in. Yeah. The Messenger, have you seen that? Woody Harrelson? Uh, I haven't seen that, but I hear good things it's about pretty it. Good. I'm pretty sure that's him in it, unless I'm mistaken. Uh, Was he in 310 to Yuma, like the newer one? Uh, I've actually I, not seen that I one. think he was. I think he was with uh, Christian Bale. Anyway. But yeah, uh, he's a, a good kind of underrated, kind of floats under the radar, makes stuff like this. It's kind of, you know, tier below big Hollywood stuff right. most of the time. Right. Um, so, yeah, leave no trace next week. Uh, follow us on Twitter, at Anthropod Tweets. As always, available on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Uh, or just, you know, email me. I'll send it to you. I'll give you all that good uncut stuff. Mm-hmm. Send me an email for uncut pics. Yeah, there's us. It's us just like singing the baddie rap and toxic love. It's just us watching that that throw over and over again, just being like, God damn. <laughs> um, so, yeah. He's so clutch. It's incredible. I think it's time for some night swimming. Woo! Woo!